Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me today. You know, if I have learned one thing over the past decade and specifically the last two years, it is not to accept narratives without verifying the veracity of the claims. Our discussion today concerns aspects of organ donation, organ procurement, and then eventual organ transplantation that I believe will cover information most people don't know And the reason I can say that is a lot of this I didn't know, and I consider myself pretty well-versed on this topic. My guest is a medical doctor and anesthesiologist who can provide firsthand information and help us to evaluate this area of medicine from a biblical world and life view without the emotion that usually accompanies such discussions. Dr. Heidi Klessig is the co-author of the book, Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life, What Christians Need to Know About Organ Donation and Procurement. So the question that's going to be discussed today is how should a Christian view organ transplants? Dr. Klessig, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Andrea. So I must tell you, this book was written in a pretty accessible style. It wasn't difficult to read, but it was hard to stomach in parts. In fact, I had to put it down every now and then because the reality of what you and your co-author were saying sunk in in such a way that made me think, you know, the medical industrial complex, as some people call it, has been fooling people on a lot of things for a rather extensive period of time. So let's start at the beginning. Why did you write this book? Who was your intended audience? And what was your intended outcome? Yes, sure. One of the, one of the things that prompted my co-author, Chris Bogash, and I to write the book is that there seems to be quite an injustice in that in the medical community, these concepts are debated hotly and vigorously and furiously. But the face of transplant that the public sees is very much disguised. You you really would never have any idea that there's any controversy about this. And part of the reason we wrote the book was to help unveil uh, what misleading language had done to the public at large, leading them to believe things about organ transplant, which simply are not true. And, you know, this is an emotional subject for me too. It was difficult for me to write the book. And and it's because this topic has touched me uh, in such a personal way. Uh, when I was a young woman going through medical school and, and residency, uh, I had the opportunity one day coming in to do my, my uh, night call uh, to go up and evaluate an organ donor for his anesthetic. Now you might ask yourself, why would an organ donor need an anesthetic? Are these, aren't these people dead after all? And, you know, honestly, as a young doctor, my mind was a little bit confused by that same question as well. I, I asked my supervisor, um, well, gee, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to seem stupid, but I wanted to get more information. I said, an organ donor, huh? You know, I've, 
I've evaluated lots of patients for anesthesia now, but is there anything different I should know about evaluating an organ donor? And, and he, he kind of laughed, which sort of shocked me at the time too. He said, well, you know, just, just be sure someone's actually declared him brain dead because, you know, the transplant team can be a little over eager at times. Huh. I thought to myself, okay. Well, I went up to the ICU and uh, there was, this was a young man. He was actually about my age and he had been in a motorcycle accident and it had a head injury and had been declared brain dead. And his family had consented uh, to have his organs donated. And, you know, honestly, I was very glad when I came up to the bedside that his family was not there. You know, usually we, we see a patient preparing for anesthesia in company with the family. And a lot of what an anesthesiologist might do is to, you know, comfort the family, to, to encourage them that we're going to take good care of their loved one. And what do you say when, when somebody's son isn't coming back, right? So anyway, I went to see the young man and, you know, he was lying in the ICU bed, you know, co connected to a lot of machines, which, you know, that's just a day at the office when you're, when you're dealing with medical patients. But he looked just like every other ICU patient that I had taken to the operating room. He was um, warm. He was pink. His heart was beating. His monitor showed stable vital signs. He was, had good oxygenation. I mean, everything about him looked like every other ICU patient I had taken uh, down from the ICU on a ventilator for surgery. So I, you know, I evaluated him and examined him and filled out the preoperative form and came down uh found the uh, attending anesthesiologist who was going to be supervising me and, and he listened to you know, what I had found and he asked me what my plan of care was. And I said, well, um, I'm going to give him some narcotic uh, to blunt any you know, pain reflex responses and I'm going to give him a paralyzing agent, which uh, is commonly done in anesthesia to keep the person from, from moving during anesthesia. And my, my supervisor looked at me and he said, you know, you probably want to add a drug to blunt consciousness. And I remember being confused by that. And I asked him straight out, I said, wait a minute, is, isn't he dead already? And my, my attending looked kind of over his mask at me in, in kind of a direct way and said, just in case. So, huh. So I, I brought this man down to the operating room and again, just like every other ICU patient that I had given an anesthetic to, he, he responded to surgery exactly the way other patients do until at one point, you know, during incisions, giving more anesthetic in the form of a pain reliever did not bring his blood pressure down. And then I thought about what my attending had told me, you know, to give a drug to block consciousness. And you know, when I gave that drug, the blood pressure came down immediately. Well, I'll tell you, my mind was reeling at that point when, you know, suddenly the surgeon looked over the drape at me and said, okay, we're, we're done with you now. You can turn everything off. And I was, I was just not mentally prepared for this. I was stunned. I think the, the surgeon might have had to repeat himself. I was, I was so flustered by all this. But, you know, I, I was trained to, to think like, like a doctor. I mean, if any of your listeners have been through medical training, it's, it's a fairly, uh, indoctrinating process in its own way. You're being trained to think in a certain way. And so, you know, I, I did what he said. I, I turned everything off and, and I walked away. And the sad part is, you know, as much as that memory sticks in my mind here 40 years later, I, I managed to just stuff it down and, and not really think about it too much during the rest of my training. And 
I completed my training and went into private practice. And actually, only I only practiced anesthesia for one year in private practice before I realized I missed talking to my patients. So I entered a, a pain management practice. So I had an outpatient practice and I could be one-on-one -on -one with my patients. So I really never had a chance to uh, be confronted with this situation of giving an anesthetic for an organ donor again. But, you know, later in life, uh, when this came to my attention, I was absolutely floored. You know, in about 2012 or so, there were some books written uh, about this topic, and some conference speakers were, were mentioning that organ donors actually were not biologically or spiritually dead. And I I just about died. I, I thought to myself, dear God, what have I done? And I remembered that case so vividly that I had taken a young man whose heart was beating. He was breathing. I mean, sure, with a ventilator, but he, his, I have no doubt that his spirit was still in his body. And I took him and held him down with anesthetic drugs while surgeons essentially euthanized him, caused his death by removing his vital organs. Okay, Heidi, I'm going to stop you here because I'm sure that people listening might have the same reaction that I had early on. Your book was not the first time that I understood that the language had been changed in such a way that the term dead and death had changed its meaning that there would be two separate definitions, a legal definition of death and a medical definition of death. So much so that a death certificate is not filled out on a, an organ donor until after the surgery. So would you explain the difference between the legal and the medical definition? You're exactly right. I mean, if some of your listeners recall just this past summer, the tragic death of actress Anne Hesch, uh, she was declared brain dead, but then kept alive on a ventilator until her organs could be procured a few days later, which led to an interesting kerfuffle in the news. The LA Times and other outlets reported her death at the time of her brain death declaration. But the Washington Post and the New York Times held off on declaring her dead until after her organ harvest. And this reveals that, you know, even in, even in the press, there is some acknowledgement that a declaration of brain death does not mean you're biologically dead. But in uh, the way this language got changed was in 1968, a, a group of doctors at the Harvard Medical School really with a view of freeing up healthy, viable organs for transplant, uh, wrote a landmark article in which they declared, you know, by fiat, there were no studies, no tests, no uh, really ways of determining if what they were saying was true. They declared that people in an irreversible coma could be declared as dead. And their findings then were codified into law in 1981 as the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which we call the UDDA. And in the UDDA, you may be declared legally dead if all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem, are irreversibly stopped, or if your heart and lungs are irreversibly stopped. And there's really no fancy test that doctors need to do to 
prove either of these uh, different categories. All they have to do is a bedside exam consistent with medical standards, which, which have never been defined. So actually each, each center, each hospital in, in our country and around the world are free to make up uh, whatever they think is the standard for brain death or circulatory death determination. Now, these people are legally dead, but biologically alive. And you being in California, you may remember the case of a young 13-year-old girl, uh, Jahag McMath, who was declared legally dead in California, but went on to live biologically uh, with her family for four more years in New Jersey. So let me ask you this, and I think you mentioned this in the book. If she's legally dead, but not medically dead, what does this constitute in terms for her care? Sadly, uh, Jahi McMath had a bleed after a tonsillectomy and lost so much blood that, that she had low blood pressure and had brain damage. And so in California, she was declared legally dead. And sadly, because the hospital had made that determination uh, over the objections of Jahi's family, they stopped care. They stopped feeding the child. They stopped hydrating the child. They stopped all medical care because to them, she was dead. Well, thankfully, the family was able to secure help from other physicians who uh, managed to get her transferred to uh, New Jersey, which is the only state of our union which allows for a conscience uh, objection to the brain death diagnosis and will allow care to continue. But because California felt she was no longer a person, she had been effectively unpersoned by the legal code of California, there was no state aid, there was no help for the family in, in covering uh, medical costs or, or anything that they needed for moving or ongoing care. They tried to later sue the state of California and neurologists came in and testified that Jahi was not brain dead. She was in a minimally conscious state, but the powers that be were, were not able to be moved and the family received no compensation. And you even cite instances where somebody's lived for 20 years after being declared brain dead or dead circulatory death. Absolutely. If you go to our website, respectforhumanlife.com, we've just put up a real fun page to read because it's the happy stories. There's a, I think we have over 10 cases of people who were declared brain dead and live to tell the tale. And it's, it's very uplifting to read. I mean, some of these people, uh, their families just pressed for a second opinion. Some of these people, one of them was lying in the ICU bed, listening to his parents give permission to make him an organ donor, unable to move or sign, feeling extremely angry and frightened and frustrated. Fortunately, uh, as he was waiting his turn in line to be harvested, he was able to move and, and his life was saved. I mean, these, these are people who, as I say, they are not biologically or spiritually dead. A lot of them, I think, are able at some level to have consciousness and awareness of their situation. And it's a tremendous tragedy and a tremendous injustice what is happening to the organ donors around our country and the world. So just to be clear, Christians are used to the terminology spiritually dead, meaning the person has not been born again. That's not what you're talking about. You're talking about an actual consciousness that although the person can't communicate or demonstrate things through his or her senses, 
that the awareness, that which makes a person a total person is his mind, his soul, his body, that that presence is still there. That's correct. I think the, the best way to think about this is, is that the historic teaching of the church is that humanity, people, we are a body, soul, unity. We are not, you know, an embodied soul or an ensouled body, as Plato or Aristotle would say. Uh, we're not uh, a brain driving our body around like a machine, the way they thought about people in the Renaissance. I mean, the historic teaching of the church is that we are a body, soul, unity. And at death, that's when there's that dramatic disruption of, of our soul leaving our body. And when that happens, our body integration stops and begins to break down. I mean, when when we, uh, I love our English language in this regard, because again, the biological definition of death is the loss of the integration of the organism as a whole. When our soul or spirit departs, all of that wonderful integration that we have with our heart rate, our breathing, our blood pressure, our digestion, our temperature control, all of that becomes disordered and we begin to break down. And our English language even reflects that since we call that disintegration, right? So when the biological definition is the loss of integration of the organism as a whole, and when our spirit departs, our body begins to disintegrate, shows that you know even our language reflects correct thinking on this point. One of the points that you make that was sort of a uh, aha moment for me is that when we're discussing the life of the unborn, people who understand that all human beings are made in the image of God and God, as the Psalm says, formed us in our mother's womb that we don't say, well, the baby's only a baby once the heart is beating or once the brain is developed. We're making the assertion that on a cellular level, when the male sperm joins with the female egg that you have a new person and that God animates this person and we call it a person. But we don't use the same definitions or perspectives at the end of life. So we then decide, well, the brain isn't working if in fact it's not really working or the circulation isn't happening, but we don't apply the same standard. And that was a surprise to me because it isn't so much that I didn't believe that we shouldn't end people's lives just because we decide that their quality of life isn't good, but that we really have an inconsistency in how we view things. That's correct. That's one of the, uh, that's one of the aha moments too when I give my presentations is, is I show the picture of the person in the ICU who's been declared brain dead. And then I show a picture of the fertilized egg and I say, do you see a brain? Our, our personhood is not predicated on whether we have an organ or a functioning organ. It's because a new body-soul unity has been endowed, the spark of life by, by our Lord. And that is a person to be protected from fertilization until natural death. So in a lot of ways, without knowing it, we've adapted and adopted a pagan view of life as you talked about a soul and a, and the body being two separate things as opposed to how God creates an integrated unit. But more than that, we've adopted this idea, is this life worth continuing? So we have 
phrases like quality of life. And even that is a relatively new position in what we would call civilized societies. That's right. And I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of medical professionals that, that I've talked to, they, they ascribe to more of the idea that, gee, your son is dead because the person he was isn't there anymore is the language I've heard again and again. And what we have to remember as Christians is that image bearers of, of God are worthy and valuable no matter what shape they're in, no matter if they're able to do things or disabled from doing things. Uh, they are image bearers of God and they are worthy of our protection. So when you think about the oath that doctors take about do no harm, now let's be honest, that's not a biblical phrase. That's a, the phrase of the Hippocratic Oath. But we forget that there are a variety of people involved. For every organ donation, there's someone procuring the organ and then someone receiving the organ. And we tend to, you know, focus on the two ends, the two bookends, but your book makes it pretty clear that organ transplantation is a big business and the people who end up wealthy as a result of it are not the people who donate and not the people who receive. Talk a little bit about that. So it might surprise you to know that the organs uh, or the corpse that you give away for free you know, is worth you know, quite a bit of money. I mean, we have graphics, if you go to our website again, that, that shows you know, the amount of money that, that these things uh, cost. Just kind of glancing here at what I have. I mean, a heart transplant is going to be about a million and a half dollars. Uh, a cornea transplant, about $32,000. I mean, even just the amounts that are charged for uh, tissues from a corpse. If, if you give away a, a piece of skin about the size of a typing paper, I'm, I'm remembering it's something around $16,000. It's, it's a large amount of money. And so, I think the amount of money, I mean, they say follow the money, right, does drive some of these unethical practices. One of the things that surprised us as we researched our book, you know, and again, I should I should clarify, there are transplants that can be done in a, a noble, laudable Christian way. Uh, the transplants where both the donor and recipient remain alive after a procedure, such as with a kidney transplant, would be a wonderful thing to do. And we highlight a mother who gave a kidney to her daughter in our book. And then also donation from a, a true corpse, someone who is cold, gray, stiff, their, their spirit has departed. Uh, that person can give tissues. And again, that's another important point. Tissues are things like skin, bone, fat, corneas. These things are not reliant on a continuous flow of oxygen and nutrition in the blood to the same way that organs are. And so a biologically dead corpse can give tissues. The thing that I was going to tell you that surprised us, though, is that as we were researching, uh, the LA Times had written an article talking about how even dead tissue donors can uh, be served an injustice and the way that happens is uh, in the state of California, they found over two dozen cases where the organ procurement organization had first chance at the corpse before the coroner or medical examiner could make a determination of death. And where that led to these, these sad stories is that 
uh, there were people whose death was potentially the result of a crime. Uh, one young woman had apparently sustained a severe beating, perhaps at the hands of her boyfriend. But because she was registered as an organ and tissue donor, the organ procurement organization took her first. And by the time they had removed heart valves, bone, skin, fat, the body was so destroyed that the medical examiner was no longer able to tell were her injuries due to the tissue procurement or were they due to her previous possible homicide. Uh, this this is a terrible injustice also. And so even even when it might be reasonable to consider a donation of tissues, there are things to be aware of. So overall, we would say when Jesus told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we know that righteousness is a synonym for justice. And so justice plays a part in all aspects of this. Justice for the person and the family who are consenting to these organ donations. And now you've clearly stated that you need someone to be alive medically to donate an organ. I've often said to people, if grandma dies in the next room and you find out a minute later that she's died, her organs will be of no use to anyone. And so I think it was in one of your videos where you talked about the number of people who are registered as organ donors, the number of people who are on the waiting list, and nobody has ever really asked the question, well, when people die, we should have all these organs available. And so, Heidi, isn't this part of the narrative that most people don't understand that the people aren't really medically dead? Yes, I'm glad you brought that example up. I think this is a real easy way for people to understand what we're talking about. So again, to donate an organ, as you mentioned, organs are very, very reliant on a continuous supply of oxygen and nutrition from the blood. Now, a heart, a lung, a liver, a kidney, as soon as that circulation stops, they very quickly become non-viable for transplant. And so if we look at just simple numbers, I mean, on audio, I know numbers uh, are not that easy to understand, but I'll try to keep this very simple. So last year, 2021, uh, there were about one and a half million registered organ donors who died. Now, last year, there were only about 100,000 people waiting for a transplant. So with pretty simple math, you have one and a half million organ donors who have died, 100,000 people needing a transplant. If you do just the division, everyone should get 15 organs. And that's only if every dead donor gave one organ. I mean, donors can give up to eight organs. So really, if you multiply that, you could get 120 organs per waiting recipient if dead people could donate their organs. So why is there a transplant waiting list? It makes no sense. Well, the reason, according to organdonor.gov, is that only three in a thousand people die in such a way, that's the language they use, that allows for organ donation. And so that brings up this new way of so-called dying, which in effect is legal death, not biological death. You must, must be biologically alive to donate organs. So there was a part in your book where humor, well, is it really humor or is it ironic? You make the point, just like cigarettes 
the cigarette pack or the carton has to have a warning that there should be a warning when you decide that you're going to have a card that says you will donate your organs. It should read warning. It remains controversial whether you will actually be dead at the time of the removal of your organs. And I don't think most people who consider it a noble act to have on their driver's license, I will be an organ donor, have any concept of the fact that they might be really put into a torturous position to accomplish this noble deed. Exactly. That's a quote from Dr. Alan Schumann, who's a professor emeritus of pediatric neurology. And he has been very vocally and fiercely contesting this whole idea of brain death for many years. And and so we wanted to say this isn't just our opinion, my co-author and I. There are many very well-respected doctors who who are have been fighting back against these things. But yes, I mean, people should be aware, and, and because I'm an anesthesiologist, it pains me to tell you this, that you may or may not be given actual anesthesia if you become an organ donor. There was an interesting study from England, and what they found out is that anesthesiologists were sort of half and half about whether they would give an anesthetic to an organ donor. Half of them said, well, you know, he might he might be conscious. There might be something that I'd have to worry about with him being aware of his situation. So I would give an anesthetic. The other half, interestingly, they didn't really care about whether or not the organ donor would be aware during surgery. They were more concerned that if the public at large found out that anesthesiologists were giving anesthetics to organ donors, they might suspect that those people were not really dead. Yes. And I'm also told, and you can verify this, I I think you mentioned in your book, but I had heard it elsewhere, that part of the reason to give paralytic drugs, and you mentioned that that's not uncommon in a surgery with somebody's hoping to emerge alive, is that it was upsetting to the medical staff to see the people react when incisions were made with a saw from their sternum to their pelvis. Absolutely. Yes, these these people are biologically alive and will react to painful stimuli like surgery just like any other patient. So here's a question that um, as you've researched this, I mentioned it before about the quality of life. I've heard so many people say, well, I tell you what, If I end up in an accident or a coma, I want someone not to put me on a ventilator. Is that the same thing if people decide that either we can't afford to continue to care for this person because economics plays a part in life? A lot of people are told, well, at least something good can come out of the death of your loved one. Um, How do you respond to people who say, you know, isn't there a time to die So why would we go through all these extraordinary measures to keep someone alive and then in the process not do something good for someone else? Well, I'm certainly not saying that there isn't a time to recognize that care, ongoing care might be futile. And no one is in favor of continuing futile care. I mean, I tell people when I speak, you know, let grandpa go to heaven, let grandpa return to be with the Lord. If, if it is certainly the, the end of life and there's absolutely no hope, stand around your loved one, have your arms around them, pray for them, sing to them. It's, it's quite a, a transition in life, almost 
at like birth. I mean, when we come into the world, it's, it's a, it's a scary and, and new experience for each one of us. And I think at the end of life, it's the same thing. So yes, you certainly morally and ethically can remove care from a loved one. And I would, I would, I would recommend you cluster around that person and affirm your love for them and, and help them as they make that transaction, uh, transition to the next life. But, you know, we, we are not our own. We are bought at a price and we have to honor God with our body and giving yourself over to be euthanized in some idea that you are doing good for someone is, is self murder. It's, it's against the law of God. It is, it is out of bounds for a Christian. And you even make the statement that depending on how the circumstances are, because there are many exploitive ways in which these organs are procured, that it either amounts to prostitution or trafficking of human beings, that we need to examine it in terms of, as you said, who owns us. That's right. And we go on our website and our book through the many, there are many different types of transplant. And so, as I mentioned, a living donation of where both the organ donor and recipient remain alive is an ethical way to go. Uh, donation of a biologically dead corpse once, once the medical examiner has shown, you know, what, that their death was not a result of a crime, that all the family's questions have been answered as to why did my loved one pass away? Is there a need for an autopsy? Once all those questions are answered, certainly a, a biologically dead corpse can donate tissues. Uh, but, you know, I'm sure your listeners may have heard about the terrible situation going on in communist China right now, where uh, when you are convicted as a political prisoner, uh, you are forced to undergo blood and tissue typing, and you are considered an organ donor. And this has majorly affected the practitioners of the Falun Gong religion, which is a religion of meditation and, and peace. It's, it's affected the Uyghur Muslims in a big way because their organs, since they are Muslim, are considered uh, by the Muslim community to be so-called uncontaminated by pork or alcohol. And so their organs are very marketable to wealthy uh, recipients from the Saudi countries. And now host church Christians are being added to that list. And so in, uh, in the communist China presently, as we speak, uh, they are shopping out the organs of their uh, religious uh, dissenters all around the world. And uh, there's a very good organization that you can find online called Doctors Against Forced Organ Harvesting. And they detail this and uh, they talk about how Israel actually went on to ban this practice. Sadly, uh, it is still something that American insurance companies will pay for. But in Israel, a, a patient came to his doctor and said, hey, doc, you know, I need a pre-op physical. I'm, I'm going to uh, go have an organ transplant on such and such a date in China. And his doctor said, wait a minute. How can you schedule an organ transplant? How do you know that a, a donor that matches you will be available on that date? Well, the fact is, in China, they do know because your donor is going to be executed by organ harvest on the date that you arrive for your transplant. Yeah, that, that, that's chilling. And then, so that would be the black market, but the red market of transplantation happens as well when uh, people are convinced that they can help their families if they willingly donate an organ. 
human beings become a commodity. In other words, we can, I can sell my kidney, uh, even though the person in theory isn't going to die from giving up his or her kidney. It's not like after you give up a kidney that you might not require medical care, but do these poor people have access to it afterwards? They're really just being used. That's right. And that is the organ trafficking is another huge problem in the transplant industry. And this is, this is the exploitation of the poor. And the Bible has nothing good to say about exploiting the poor. Uh, These are people in countries like Pakistan, uh, they, or Afghanistan is the one in the news most recently. Uh, They are in terrible financial straits. And so they'll be approached by, you know, these organ uh, procurers and say, hey, you know, we'll give you a thousand bucks for the kidney. And, you know, these people are, are so destitute that what choice really do they have? And yes, it's, it's a terrible injustice for these people. I mean, the, the mother daughter team that we discuss in our book, who did a laudable living donation, that mother, after she donated her kidney, had terrible complications, which required a lot of time, money, and hospitalization to fix. And I'm here to tell you, someone in Pakistan, once they've given that kidney, I would be shocked if they have any access to follow-up care for the rest of their life. And that's why it's important to think the whole thing through, as opposed to accepting the narrative. And you've probably experienced this subsequent to being a vocal opponent to such things. But when I talk to people about this, if someone in their household has received an organ from someone else, they accuse me of, oh, I see you want my father dead. I see. You would rather he be dead than alive. And that's part of the emotional discussion that I was talking about earlier that, no, I'm not happy that this person didn't die right? But we have to examine the whole process to determine whether or not something is ethically and morally right from a biblical point of view. Talk a little bit about the fact that uh, there are many people walking around today who have received organs just the way you described. What do they do? How do they view what took place? How should they view it? You know, these practices have been going on now for over 50 years. And so, There's lots of people who are involved in lots of ways. Some of them are are medical professionals uh, like me. Uh, Some of them uh, have received an organ. I mean, I've talked to a man in tears who had given a beloved brother to be an organ donor and realized later what he had done. I mean, there's so many situations. And so, again, when I speak about these things, I really want to offer the the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to all of these people. I mean, many of the people who received an organ, they didn't know. No one told them. They were lied to. It's not their fault that they, they thought they were getting a, an ethical treatment. It's it's something that in, in the Lord's care, we can all find grace and mercy and forgiveness. On the other hand, why do we continue with an unethical practice? I mean, this is this is wrong. And I think if we hadn't been pouring all of our time, money, and research dollars into perpetuating this unethical system, who knows about the other treatments, ethical treatments that could have been developed by now that might actually work better. You know, the I was just amazed. I found the other day, there's an actuarial service called the Milliman Report. And looking at the one-year and five-year survival rates of organ transplant from 2017 to 2020, 
or so, let's see, one year and three years it is, they show that the success of these transplants actually is diminishing over time, not improving. And so I think we need to forgive one another. I think we need to look at ethical means of treating people, and, and we need to move forward in a different way. And you point out in the book that if the supply of human organs goes down for whatever reason, that now the medical profession is examining things like transplanting organs from pigs and monkeys into human beings. Yes. And that, that's, that has its own ethical interest too. Now, way back in 1906, some of the first transplant trials were from uh, goats into humans, but of course, you know, people weren't aware of compatibility issues back then, and, and none of those were successful. Uh, just this uh, past year or two, uh, a gentleman received a modified pig heart, and the question about that is: is how is it modified? Is it sort of like these these humanized mice that we've been reading about recently in the news? Where are they getting the the human genes to modify these animal hearts? We have to worry, you know, the Bible says that uh, the righteous man has a care for his beast. I mean, what is the quality of life for these lab animals who are having their genes manipulated to become uh, organ donors? And the the third question I have is, are there endogenous animal viruses that these immunosuppressed recipients will have to deal with for the rest of their lives? And it, as it turns out, the, the gentleman who received the modified pig heart uh, earlier uh, in the last year or so only lived about 45 days and then uh, died from a, a pig cytomegalovirus uh, an animal virus and so there are there are ethical questions with that as well but the the cost and the remuneration wasn't rescinded because the patient died in other words everybody made their money along the way and even with organ recipients who live they're a constant customer for the pharmaceutical industry, correct? That's correct. And, and that's another public perception. I mean, we all, we all have the rosy scenario in mind, you know, when someone gets an organ. But the, the truth is, you know, you are still living with a, a chronic medical condition, having to be immunosuppressed for the rest of your life. There are, there's medications and treatments you're going to have to undergo for the rest of your days. I knew a young man who had received a heart when he was a year old. He lived to be 16 years old, but somewhere around eight years old, in an effort to not have his body reject the donated heart, um, he ended up with cancer. And then he had two conflicting things going on. He had trying not to reject the organ that he had received and at the same time tried to deal with the cancer. And I believe at least a year before he was dying, he was taking like 40 medications a day. That wouldn't be not at all surprising. That would be par for the course. You know, that's the other question. I mean, as, as, as believers, it, it's something to wrap your mind around. If, if say I, I developed terrible heart disease, you know, would I consider taking a heart transplant? Now, knowing what I know, knowing that these organs come from someone who has been murdered for them i ethically could not do that but as christians too we have to we have to remember that you know christ conquered death do we really believe that 
that death is not the end. You know, can we go joyfully and victoriously to death and, and avoid, you know, just trying to spare our lives for a few more years? It's, a, it's an individual decision that we should all think about ahead of time. I mean, Christ has conquered the grave. Heaven really is better. And, and we should have more of a joyful attitude than, than I see around. I think sometimes even Christians can make an idol out of out of our health and out of uh, our life. I mean, we have to remember that our our life is hid with Christ in God. And you point out this excessive fear of death. And I think we saw that played out with all the COVID restrictions and the mandates that you must uh, close your business, you must wear a mask, you must separate from those you love, and you must get a vaccine. Christian, the worst thing that can happen to you is not the first death, it's the second death. That's right. All right. Before we go, I want to cover one thing that I have in my notes to do and to really explain to our listeners the difference between the traditional observable diagnosis of death, that the person is cold, unresponsive, the coloring has changed, there is no pulse, there will be no blood pressure. So for thousands of years, people could determine someone was dead. But with these changing of definitions, explain how, whether it's brain death or circulatory death, how they obfuscate the reality and how they actually try to produce evidence that says, no, this person is dead. And I think it's important because there are a lot of people who might have had their names on a donation registry and maybe afterwards of hearing you say all this might decide, uh, I don't think I want to do this. So I think it's important that they understand the different ways these procurements are quote unquote voluntarily given. Uh, yes. If, if you have signed a donor card, um, your organs will be taken. I mean, if you have a living will, uh, the donor card supersedes that. Law, the way it's written uh, right now under the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act is that unless you have a specific refusal to donate, uh, you will be considered an organ donor. And in fact, if you come into a hospital, you know, incapacitated and your family cannot be contacted within what they call a reasonable amount of time, even the hospital administrator can consent to donate your organs if you don't have a specific refusal, which which I find quite terrifying because you're taking someone now whose primary interest is in the money that can be made from your organs and putting them in charge of a very significant decision over your health. So on our website, you can find a link to a specific refusal card if that's something that might pertain to you. Um, brain death is is simply uh, determined at the bedside. There's no special scans or tests. And in fact, because so many people who would fulfill a diagnosis of brain death still have electrical activity in their brain, the requirement for an EEG, an electroencephalogram, was removed in 1971 because you know, there is electrical activity continuing in these many of these people. The doctor just uses plain old things that you might have around your, your house or kitchen. They, they stick a 
cotton swab in your eye to see if you blink. They shine a flashlight in your pupils to see if they constrict. Um, they might shoot some cold ice water in your ears to see if it makes your eyes dizzy. They'll give a painful stimulus on your breastbone or pinch your nail bed to see if you re react to the pain. And then they'll disconnect your ventilator. Now, the disconnection of the ventilator is a, a problematic test because it does absolutely no good for a brain injured patient and in fact exacerbates brain injury uh, because when the carbon dioxide in our blood increases, that causes more brain swelling, increasing the pressure on the brain and can actually cause further brain damage. There have been cases of people who they had the apnea test and they, they weren't meeting all the criteria for brain death the first time. But after the damage of the apnea test, the second brain death determination, sure enough, now now they meet the criteria. And I think that the test itself can contribute to further brain damage. Again, brain death is a legal and moral fiction. These people are in no way dead. These people are biologically alive. They have not lost the integration of all their systems as a whole. Their, their soul has not departed from their body. So calling the other, them a vegetable is totally wrong, and it actually demeans them as people made in the image of God. Absolutely. The body-soul unity has not yet been disrupted. That person is a person. The other type of um, do donation is called donation after circulatory death. Uh, these people are not brain dead, uh, but they are very sick, and they are not expected to survive. So doctors approach uh, these families and say, you know, you're going to be, I understand, withdrawing care on your loved one. Uh, how about if we do that in such a way that we can go and take their organs after their heart stops beating? The problem with this is that um, the way it's performed is this, these people are taken down to the operating room um, they're made ready for surgery. The, the ventilator is stopped. The, the intravenous drips are stopped. And uh, there's a wait to see if, when the heart stops beating. Once the heart stops beating, uh, doctors wait anywhere from 75 seconds in some cases to two to five minutes in other cases. There's, again, no standard. There's a, a variety of, of different centers who do it differently. And then after that, then they perform sort of a resuscitation of your organs. But many times they clamp off the circulation to your brain. This is really horrifying because as medical professionals, we know that 75 seconds to five minutes after your heart stops beating, you can still be resuscitated. There are many, many people whose hearts have stopped beating for 75 seconds to five minutes who have been resuscitated and have walked out of the hospital and made a full recovery. You are not dead at a time when resuscitation is still possible. The practice of clamping off your brain then to make you brain dead on purpose and then hooking you up to a machine to, that will circulate your blood, restarting your heart. I mean, if your heart can be restarted in your own chest, how irreversible was that? I mean, the statute of the UDDA stipulates that the heart and lungs must be irreversibly stopped, yet these organs are being restarted in the patient's own chest before harvest. And I contend this is not meeting the legal or ethical standard of irreversibility. These people are not dead yet either. 
So who writes these laws and whose interest are these laws serving? At, at present, um, the interests are clearly serving uh, those of the transplant industry. And I'm glad you brought up laws because the American Academy of Neurology has asked uh, for a revision to the UDDA, the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which is being studied by a body called the Uniform Law Commission, and they are set to come out with their findings by next year. Um, the American Academy of Neurology is a big proponent of the brain death diagnosis, and they recognize that current practices are not even following the standard as written. Right now, the standard says that we have to have uh, the loss of the function of the entire brain. And the neurologists know in this organization that almost all organ donors have a functioning hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain. It, it makes a hormone that helps us maintain our, our fluid and blood pressures uh, in, in proper order. They also know that many people have continuing electrical activity. And so they realize that we're not following the law as written. So Interestingly, their paper, the very first sentence states, in an attempt to decrease lawsuits by people contesting the brain death diagnosis is the reason they wrote this uh, new standard. They want to remove the requirement that the entire brain uh, be irreversibly non-functional. They want to just decrease it to uh, the brainstem uh, tests that can be performed at the bedside. And the Uniform Law Commission is is taking input on that right now. So that would be something to be aware of. Also, they want to take away families' ability uh, to withdraw consent. They want it to be so you cannot dispute the fact they're going to do an apnea test on your loved one. They want to remove the requirement for the family's consent to brain death testing, which, again, is a great injustice to patients and families and only serves to... Uh, forward the interests of the transplant industry. So these are things that that are uh, on some of the articles I've written that you can find on the website if you want more information. And what's the name of the website again? Respectforhumanlife.com. So let me close with, first of all, thank you for writing the book. And the, the title of the book, again, is Harvesting Organs and Cherishing Life what Christians need to know about organ donation and procurement. I highly recommend people get it. It's not a very long book, but it's one of these things that should be in your library and you be familiar with so that when crisis happens, you've already thought things through. Many people I know who received organs weren't given a lot of time to make the decision. They were told, well, we've got something available now. It's not you. We'll go to the next person. And they had just only even heard that uh, a transplant was something that could help their loved one. So being prepared is a good thing. More than that is that we have to get away from what serves man and we need to look at what honors God. And we've got to stop taking how we feel, what we would like, instead of asking the question, well, how would you feel if you were a burden financially to your your family? Or how would you feel if, as a result of you dying, that there were many people who could have been helped? I think what you have to say shows us that our view of this narrative needs to change, but also to not assume we know. Um, I told you about this young man he was put at one point into a drug-induced coma 
because his body was going into rejection on the transplant. And he had a brother who um, would come in and talk to him occasionally. Now, the brother thought he's not really there. He doesn't know what I'm saying. And he promised him that he would give him a piece of sports memorabilia that meant a lot to him. And the first thing this young man said when he came out of the coma was, is he still going to give me the football? So for us to assume we know what's going on with people because we can't respond to them or they can't hear us is so presumptive in terms of God could end the life of someone on a ventilator, correct? The ventilator would not override God's ability to end a life, correct? Correct. So we have to have a heavenly view, so to speak, of what's going on here And I like what you said, sing to the person, read to the person, let the person know you love them. And it's a way to say goodbye, but let God determine whether or not the person, for example, will breathe after the ventilator is removed. That's right. I mean, the ears are always open. And and I, I would encourage your listeners, if you're ever with someone in the ICU, always assume that they're listening, always assume they can hear you. We don't have any medical tests for consciousness, we only can tell if you respond. And there are many people so ill they cannot respond, but they are completely conscious. Well, doctor, I appreciate um, you taking the time. I hope people go to your website and watch the videos you have there. This is a topic that um, when our eyes are open to it, praise God, we can't pretend we didn't know. Well, and again, I, I just, uh, we, we ask people, don't become a registered organ donor. You can still donate organs. Just don't be registered. If you want to decide to give a living donation of a kidney, that's fine. If you want to tell your, your loved ones, you know, when I'm all dead, when I'm cold stone dead, if you want to, you know, give away my corneas, fine. Just don't register because once you register, that sets into motion a process that you may not want to see happen. Indeed. Listeners, I encourage you, as I said, to read the book, go to the website. And as always, If you have questions about this or comments or even other topics you would like us to discuss, you can reach me at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. And Dr. Klessing, thank you so much for visiting with us today. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to out of the question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.